Father, we thank you again for all the ways you bless us and provide for us and sustain us. And we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for how powerfully it still speaks and guides us even today in 2023, 2000 years after these events took place and after you recorded these things for us. And so we pray that you'll give us insight into the things we're going to read together today and study. And uh, we pray that all this will be uh, effective to make us fruitful and effective in our deep personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And we ask all this for his great namesake. Amen. All right, y'all, today we're, in, we're on page 40 in your notes. Last, uh, we're getting into chapter 8 this week. Um, and, of course, just a little recap. The first seven chapters of Acts, uh, large, well, they, it centers in Jerusalem. All the events that take place are in Jerusalem. And what happens at the beginning of chapter 8 is... Uh, after Stephen is stoned, a uh, persecution breaks out against the church. Um, so things really amp up in terms of the violence and the persecution uh, against these early followers of Jesus. But also as that uh, persecution comes in in chapter 8, the gospel begins to spread from Jerusalem and it goes into Samaria, uh, Judea and then Samaria. And then we start headed toward the remotest parts of the earth. So What's being fulfilled here is exactly what Jesus told the apostles in chapter one. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. So Luke is kind of following that geographic um, organization of things. Also, it's, it's kind of fascinating. One of the commentaries I'm reading, uh, the guy does a lot of work in background resources that probably inform the way Luke wrote and the way an ancient Greek historian would put history together. And one of the one of the organizing principles is that ancient historians would often group things by uh, people groups, by ethnic people groups. And that's one of the things we see in Acts is that as the as the movement happens, it moves from one people group to another. And, and, and Luke is always very careful to highlight those people groups for us and, and give some indication of why it's significant that, you know, the activity has taken place among this people group or that people group. So today, as we get into chapter eight, we're, we're going to see some of that coming into play in a fairly significant way. So with all that in mind, uh, notice we're in, a, we're in a new section, bottom of page 40 in your notes. This is the fifth part of the, my outline of it. And here, this is where the church is scattered in Judea and Samaria. And so we'll, we'll start there in 8.1b, the second half of uh, the first verse. This is one of those unfortunate places where the um, versification and the chapters don't really fit well with the actual content of the text. Um, it ended last week where Stephen is killed and Saul has come on the scene. And he agrees to putting Stephen to death. And so, of course, Saul is going to be a major player in these chapters to come. He's, he's introduced, and then we'll pick up back up with him uh, over in, in the next several chapters. But 8.1b, bottom of page 40, uh, it says, Now on that day a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. 
And so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the message of good news. Um, I think I touched on this last week. It's interesting here that everybody is scattered except the apostles, right? the, the very men that Jesus handpicked and even their title. Apostle in Greek, it comes from a, a root that, that literally means to be sent out, right? So these are the men that are supposed to be sent out by Jesus. And instead of being scattered, they are, they are staying in Jerusalem. And one of the themes that, that we're going to see here going through Acts is that um, the Lord's plans were much larger than just the 12 apostles, they are, they are critical in the early church, and the foundation of the church is laid through their work. There's no doubt about it, and particularly Peter and Acts. Uh, Peter comes to center stage, and we know that the other 11 do things through church history and tradition and so forth, but Peter's really focused on. But what we see in uh, uh, Acts is that this movement of God can't be contained. It, it, God is going to accomplish His purposes no matter what man tries to do to slow it down, no matter how the people within the church are not careful to do what Jesus <laughs> told them to do, right? And we can all sit here today and say, thank you, Jesus, for that. Because if it didn't work that way, none of us would be here in 2023, right? Uh, if you've ever studied church history, beginning with the ascension of Jesus and going to 2023, it is a more... Um, graphically disturbing history than the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Because it's one human failure after another, one ridiculous decision after another, one rejection of Jesus' core teaching after another, and yet we're still here. Right? Because God's sovereign power is the one that's guiding this thing. Right? not human effort, not human ability. And so that, that's part of what we see as we get on over into these chapters. And, and all of us should be really thankful for that, right? The, the, the things that the Lord does in and through us are 99% are of the time in spite of us, not because of us, right? And if you haven't realized that, you're just not mature enough to know it yet, right? You just, you, you got to live long enough to... <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's, this is the very things that Gamaliel said. Right. If God is behind this, then we can't do anything about it. And we'll even find ourselves fighting against God. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I also love that that a lot of Jesus uh, parables touch on this idea, because one of the things and we're going to we're going to get to this. We haven't really hit it yet because uh, the language of the kingdom hasn't shown up fully. Jesus mentioned it earlier. But when we get to the missionary journeys in Paul, we're going to see this emphasis on the preaching of the kingdom. And, and my view is, is that what God is doing in the church right now uh, is the work of the kingdom, right? It's, it's the preliminary work of the kingdom. You and I are representatives of the kingdom. Peter and Paul and the other dis early disciples, they're representatives of the kingdom, right? So we're part of that. But even as that kingdom is being worked out, there is a future element of the kingdom that is still yet to come. Right. We're going to we're going to see this tension that people are called into the kingdom. But Paul will also say we must also enter into the kingdom at some time in the future. So my view is, is that the church is, is the present form 
the initial stages of the kingdom as the kingdom is being offered. And the reason I say that is when Jesus gives his parables about the kingdom, there, there are several of them that imply what we're talking about here. One of, one of my favorites is the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed and you throw it down to the ground and you can't even see it. But one day it becomes a great tree uh, where the birds of the air come and nest in and it takes over everything. Right. And one of the things about a mustard tree, particularly those that grew in the, the ancient Near East, is once they got rooted in, they were very difficult to get rid of, almost impossible to get rid of. Uh, here in the South, if you've ever had bamboo in your backyard and you try to get rid of it, same thing. It's kind of like what a mustard tree does. The more you root it out, the more it spreads and the more it takes over, right? And, and I love that image because that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what the work of God is like. The more you stand opposed to it, the more you can't contain it, the, the more you can't keep it in. And so we're going to see him moving uh, and using this, this persecution to spread the gospel and to send people to, to those who need to hear it. And um, yeah, just really incredible the way the Lord works. So this persecution breaks out. Top of page 41, we get, um, we get Philip coming on the scene. Now, Philip, this is not Philip, one of the 12. This is Philip, who was one of the seven uh, that was named along with Stephen back on page... Uh, where, uh, page 34 in chapter 6. If you remember, this, there were seven men who were set apart to oversee the distribution to the widows and those who were in need. Uh, that passage is often referred to as the passage where the uh, deacons come from. These are men who served the church. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But Philip is one of the names listed among uh, the seven here. And so uh, th this is Philip, um, who was one of the seven, not the Philip that's often listed among the twelve here. So 8.5, it says, Now Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And the crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs that he was performing. Just like with Stephen, who was not one of the twelve, so the Lord is performing signs through these other people. Right? It's not just through the apostles, and I want you to take note of that. Really, really significant that as um, uh, Philip preaches, the Lord also enables him to do signs to confirm the work that he's doing and to uh, confirm the message that he's speaking. 8-7, and unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. This, of course, is uh, paralleled to uh, Jesus' own ministry, right? Philip is doing the same things that Jesus did. He's preaching and he's healing, preaching and healing. Uh, another really interesting thing um, going on, if you remember, and, and I'll just make this connection. If you remember a couple of times now in these sermons, uh, particularly uh, Peter's last sermon, this was back over on page... Um, on page 25, where, where Peter gives his sermon in response to the healing of the man born lame. There at the top of page 25, Peter quoted from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 16. Now the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said, among your brothers, right? You remember that? Then uh, we, we come forward and... Um, that is quoted again. Let's see, where is that? Uh, I didn't mark it down in my notes. Is it in um, uh, 
at the end of Stephen's speech. It shows up one more time specific. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in Stephen's speech on page 38, uh, Acts 7, 37. Stephen quotes Deuteronomy 18.5 again. God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. Uh, so in uh, those previous chapters, we've had a reference to that specific passage in both of those sermons. And the really interesting thing is, notice top page 41, as Philip goes down to Samaria, he's proclaiming the Messiah to them. From what we can gather, if, if you remember, the Samaritans were part Jewish, part Gentile. They, they were a people group that came after Israel uh, came back out of Babylon. And there was a group of Israelites that intermarried with some of the people that were in the land. And so the Samaritans became that people group. And eventually they split apart from mainstream Judaism. And they uh, went you know, up north from Jerusalem. And they established their own way of worship on Mount Gerizim. If you remember, Jesus goes there at one point. Uh, they, they established kind of their own sanctuary and they had their own religion. And one of the really interesting things is, is that they, uh, like the Sadducees, they only really adhered to the first five books, the books of Moses. And based on what they saw there, uh, unlike the Pharisees, they believed that there was, a, there was a Messiah coming, another prophet coming based on Deuteronomy 18. And so they saw the coming of their Messiah as being the fulfillment of uh, Deuteronomy 18. And so as uh, Philip goes down and preaches to him, what's he doing? He's preaching the Messiah to them, right? The very thing that Peter had been doing to the Jews, uh, what uh, uh, Stephen had done. And so now Philip is going down and he's proclaiming uh, the Messiah to them in fulfillment. And of course, you know, the Samaritans play a really key role in a, a, a lot of the things that Jesus does. One of the most famous episodes is where Jesus goes into Samaria and meets the woman at the well. If you remember that? And she raises the question, you know, y'all say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem and our people tell us that uh, we're supposed to mount, worship at Mount Gerizim. Uh, which one is it really? And Jesus says, well, listen, a day is coming where that won't matter. A day is coming where the only thing will matter is that you worship in spirit and truth. And then she says, well, we know the Messiah is coming, right? And Jesus says, yeah, and I'm him. <laughs> you remember that? Such a great episode. Uh, she, is, she is one of the rare people in the Gospels that Jesus speaks plainly to. Doesn't speak cryptically. He doesn't, you know, uh, there's some, there some word plays that he does. But he just says clearly, I'm the Messiah, right? I'm the one you've been looking for. And she's so excited. She runs back into town, gets all of her friends who are hanging out at the bar, right? Brings them back down. They all welcome Jesus in. Peter's losing his mind because they love to eat horse in Samaria. You know, that's the last thing the Jewish guy wants to eat. Um, great story. Uh, fantastic stuff. But here, uh, Philip now, he goes to the Samaritans and he preaches the um, gospel to them. And they, they accept him uh, with great joy. Um, so really, really, really interesting. And also, um, if, you know, the Samaritans were at, re literally at war with the Israelites, with, with the Jewish people. Um, again, we think about our headlines and that, that people group and that land has been at war since the time of Abraham, right? Fighting over who should be there, who has the right, who's the true people and so forth. So it's really interesting that even today uh, we still have many of those same prejudices and 
problems uh, that, the, that the land is going through. Um, and so here, uh, Philip goes to them, he preaches. And right in the middle of that, really interesting thing happens. Acts 8, 9, we get introduced to this guy named uh, Simon that's going to get into some trouble here. Uh, it says, now a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery, magic, in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, uh, this man is called the great power of God. And they were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip and he preached the good news about the kingdom of God. Now see, there's the kingdom. Circle that. We're, we're going to start to pay real close attention to that. But when they believed Philip and he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Two really important ideas. Circle both those. We're going we're to pay attention to those and say some things about them here in a little bit. Both men and women were baptized. And then even Stephen himself, believed, uh, Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as they observed the signs and the great miracles that were being performed. So here we're, we're introduced to this uh, magician, sorcerer called Simon, who's doing these works. And now that he comes and he hears Philip, um, he believes. And we're going to talk about what that means potentially here in just a second because We've got some complicating things that, that happen uh, after Peter and them show up. So the Philips, uh, the uh, Samaritans are receiving the gospel. They're being baptized, right? And so what needs to happen is that work needs to be confirmed. And that's what happens in Acts 8.14. Uh, the apostles hear about it. And so they send Peter and John. So 8.14 says, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message... That is, a, that is a really important um, statement there, welcomed God's message, right? And the reason I say that is Paul, in his letters in Corinthians, he says that um, apart from the work of the Spirit of God, we cannot receive the truth. And one of the words that he uses there specifically is, uh, it's impossible for a natural person to welcome the things of God, right? Not, not just believe that they're true, but actually welcome, welcome them in in a way that causes, as we saw earlier, joy, right? Now, just hang on to those ideas. We're going to come back to that. So uh, the Samaritans have welcomed God's message, and so they sent Peter and John to them, <laughs> After they went down there, they prayed for them, and so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they too received the Holy Spirit. So notice this, this is a place, again, where things have happened a little bit differently. Um, here, the Samaritans have, have welcomed the message. They've been baptized, but the Holy Spirit didn't fall upon them until Peter and John came down. And I think part of the strategy of that, that the Lord is using, is that uh, it, it's important for Peter and John to give confirmation to this as to say, this is exactly what happened to us. And the reason I say that is that's going to come up in the council that happens in Jerusalem in chapter 15, where the, the Gentiles are welcomed in, right? They, they receive the gospel and they're welcomed in. And one of the evidences that Peter gives 
is he says, listen, I know this is crazy and we didn't really see this coming, but I'm telling you, I went and I preached to Cornelius and those at his house. And as I was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like he did on us. So how could I refuse them baptism? We baptism, baptized them and welcomed them in. So this, this, this symbol of the Spirit falling uh, confirms the work that God is doing there. And it's really important for the apostles who are the leaders of the church, in a sense, to see that and, um, you know, be able to confirm. Yeah, that, that's exactly what happened. Um, and, you know, this is again, we see that this seems to be under Jesus control, under Father God's control, that these things happen in different ways. But as it happens, it kind of confirms the work that he's doing as he's spreading out from Jerusalem and then into Samaria, Judea, and then ultimately to the remotest parts of the earth. So um, really powerful episode. Uh, anybody have any questions about any of that? I, you know, I don't know a whole lot more to say about that. Um, but there may be something there that, that you have questions about that I missed. Anybody, anything? And we're not, notice it says that uh, they received the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't give us any accompanying signs. You know, they don't speak in foreign languages. There's no tongues of fire. It doesn't, it doesn't give us any explanation. I th and, and let me just say this, y'all. I think part of what Luke is doing in Acts is he's very careful to emphasize that none of this stuff that he's recording is meant to be normative, right? He's just recording what happened. You know, now, if we went through and every time that we saw something happen and we saw that if the, when the Holy Spirit is given, tongues of fire comes down, they speak in foreign languages, and then they're baptized, right? If that happened every time, well, then we could say, well, that's probably what's supposed to happen, right? But because it doesn't, ever happen that way, right? It happens different every time it happens. As you go through the book, you realize, oh, okay, we can't put God in a box. Because I don't know about y'all, when I became a believer, and I can't even tell you when that actually happened, right? I've, I've been in the church my whole life. My earliest memory is of my mom reading Bible stories to me and me asking her embarrassing questions that turned her face red, right? <laughs> I remember very clearly, and I, I mean, I was small enough to be in my mama's lap, which is a long time ago, right? You understand? She was reading uh, the, uh, out of Luke uh, at Christmas time, the Virgin Mary, and I asked, Mama, what is a virgin? She wasn't expecting that question that night, right? How do you, how do you tell a four or five-year-old? But she gave me a really good answer. She just said Mary was, was a, 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 a pure young woman that had not been stained by the world yet. That's a pretty good answer. That, and it's so good that I still remember it today, right? That's what mamas do. If you've never read the bi biography of Susanna Wesley, right? You need to read about her because she is the reason we have John and Charles Wesley who turned the world upside down, right? Through that one lady. Mamas are the most significant people that live on the face of the planet. Now, fathers are important. Fathers are important, but we get too distracted and get too wrapped around the axles with things that don't matter, right? <clears throat> um, there, was a, there was a post going around on Facebook this week that said, um, you know, something along the lines of men are willing to fight dragons and uh, get in sword fights with enemies for the women they love. Just don't ask us to do the dishes, right? <laughs> the point being... Um, 
uh, as, as um, well, now I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> Messed my mind up so bad. What the heck was I talking about? Uh, I know. Well, man, I took a big old swill of Dayquil. I'm thinking it might have been NyQuil now, the way, the way I'm feeling in my mind. I kind of feel like I'm over here somewhere. You know what I'm talking about? Um, what the heck? We were talking about, oh, yeah, uh, the, the, the uh, gospel story. And the, uh, uh, and the significance of that, talking about um, putting God in a box, right? Yeah, thank you. Um, if, if we had read all those things and they had been normative, right, then we would expect that to be. But all of us have a very different experience. And, you know, I grew up in the ch- church. And so for me, I, I, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about his experience becoming a believer. And he said, for me, it was not a Paul on the Damascus Road experience, blinding flash and he turns from being a persecutor of the church to being, you know, the key uh, proclaimer of the church. C.S. Lewis says, for me, it was more like the process of becoming, going from being a boy to becoming a man. There are many points along the way that got me there, and all of those had to work together, right? And you don't really know when it happened. That's, that's kind of the way I came to faith. And, you know, I was baptized when I was 12 years old, but a tongue of fire didn't come. I didn't speak in different languages. I didn't know anything had happened, right? But then as you grow, you start to realize, oh, wait a minute, there's something in here that's different from me, right? Guiding and leading and very subtly. You know, I'm not saying anything jumps out, but, but um, I think that's important because we all have different experiences. And none of these in Acts are meant to be normative. It's just this is the way God worked. He, he may do something like this again, or he may not, but you can't put him in a box, and also, the, we're, you know, we're going to get a few other chapters in and we find out that the church in Jerusalem, the, the key people there are the, the, the apostles, but also the elders that's, that, that start to develop as we go along. And so they kind of become the confirming voice of, of what's happening. So I, th- I think this is kind of a you know, multi-level thing that it's important for Peter and John to see it to report back. But also for the Samaritans to have Peter and John come down because they would have known who they were, you know. In fact, you know, I've, I've often wondered if Peter and John, you know, as they go back, they, they've already been there with Jesus, yeah. you know. And the really interesting thing is John was one of the ones. If you remember in Luke, when they were going through and, and they're at the very end, when they head back to go to Jerusalem and when they pass into Samaria, Jesus preaches there and they reject him. And John and his brother, you remember what they say? Lord, should we just go ahead and call down fire from heaven and burn these people up, right? That's John. And now we sent back and I'm sure they, Peter and John, probably see some of the same people who were there. And now, now they're believers. And the laying of the hands. Excellent. Uh, I meant to say something about that, didn't uh, Several times, uh, if you remember when they set apart the seven, they laid their hands on them. There is a sense in which that is a um, that is uh, it's not so much a conference of uh, power or authority, but a recognition, you know, of God is at work here. And so we're 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 literally putting our hands into it. We're we're giving our blessing or our approval over it, uh, which which is, it, you know, we still use that somewhat today. If you've ever. If you've ever seen somebody commissioned, you know, missionaries commissioned or whatever, and people lay their hands on them and it's, you know, it's it's a a symbolic act of we we're with you. We're here to support you. 
And we're also saying, hey, we, we want to uh, confirm what, what God is doing in your, in your presence. It is a really, if you've never had that done to you before, it's a really significant thing. You know, I, when I was ordained, whatever that means, no, y'all don't, y'all, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, there were several men that laid their hands on me. And man, it was, it's a really powerful experience. You know, it's, there's, there's something in human touch. I mean, y'all, y'all know this. We are spiritual beings. And when we touch one another, it's not just a physical thing, right? You know, if, if I'm in a crowd and a bunch of people are touching me and my wife comes up and touches me, I know when she touches me, you know, because we are, we are intertwined at a much deeper level, you know. And that's true of those things. You know, we are so... Science has ruined almost everything, you know, trying to say that the world only exists in the things that can be observed and tested and whatever. And I think, okay, well, what about love? You know, what about self-sacrifice? Boy, those are some pretty big ideas. You can't, you can't bring that into a <laughs> laboratory and test it, right? Which, by the way, was one of the things that broke Carl Sagan's mind. If, if you remember Carl Sagan, you know, the great uh, naturalist from the 70s who did Cosmos and all that. At the end of his life, he struggled with the idea of love. How can I love my family so much when there's no explanation for it whatsoever, right? Almost became a believer because of it, but I don't, I don't think he quite got there. Um, page 40, um, Acts 7. This, this continues another weird story. Lord of mercy, help us all. Oh, I'm sorry. I was looking at the wrong page. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Sorry. Uh, man. Lord have mercy. Help us, y'all. Page 42. Yeah, I was back. I was looking at that other thing on there. Page 42, Acts 8, 18, uh, continuing on. So we run back to Simon for a minute. Another weird story. It says, now when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands... He offered them money, saying, uh, give me this power, too, so that anyone I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. This, uh, I think the reason that Luke includes this is dealing with exactly the question that Russell uh, just raised for us. And that is, as the Holy Spirit lay their hands on, is this something that they are manipulating, that they have the power to do in and of themselves? Or is it something else entirely? And the, and the episode with Simon here says, no, this is not something that they're doing in and of themselves, right? This is something else. So 820, it says, now Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you because you thought the gift of God could be obtained with money. And you have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. That, that's, woo, yeah, yeah. Man, Peter is letting him have it, right? And notice again, just like with Ananias and Sapphira, what is the core issue here? What's the core issue? Greed, right? Wanting to harness the power, in this case, wanting to harness the power of God to make money from it, right? With Ananias' fire, it was not being truthful about the things that they owned and they could do whatever they wanted to with. Uh, but greed is uh, central. 
which, by the way, is not a sermon you're going to hear in modern times much at all. Uh, I, I, I love it when I hear preachers get in those vice lists, you know, of things that are going to keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. And the one they always ignore is greed. I, I find that really fascinating. But that's another sermon altogether. We're going, we're going to move on from there. Uh, 824. So Simon says, please uh, pray to the Lord for me. And Simon, uh, uh, Simon replied, so that uh, nothing you have said may happen to me. And then after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. Um, really interesting. We don't really know what happened to Simon, right? But we do see his response. A lot of people think that Simon is not a believer. And so, you know, he, he comes under the condemnation of the Lord. Se- several things in my mind make me think that's not what's going on here. And I think this is almost meant to be a foil to the Ananias and Sapphira story, right? Because notice that after Peter says this to Simon, the way he responds is, is fairly powerful. 824, he says, please, please pray, who? To the, to the Lord for me, right? So here he is, in a sense, recognizing the lordship of Jesus in what he says there. And then he says, so that nothing you've spoken may happen to me. Um, people say that it doesn't really say that Simon repented. But I'm like, well, but, he did. but it sounds like it. You know, I don't know what else you do with that. It's like, Lord, you know, Peter, don't. Yeah, OK. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think this is meant to be a foil, you know, a contrast to the Ananias and Sapphira story. So, yeah, I, I think this uh, story is meant to be um, a foil, you know, a contrast to the Ananias and Sapphira story, but also to show that what the disciples are doing are, are not under their manipulation and control, right? They don't have that power because they earned it. Right? They, didn't, they didn't buy it from Jesus. And notice he says, he calls it a gift in 820. You thought you could uh, uh, gain the gift of God through money. Well, that, that's not the way this thing works. And so, uh, yeah, so a really powerful story, again, to, to highlight the fact that the Lord is doing what he wants to do in and through these people, right? And it's just kind of happening to Peter and John and the other, other apostles as they go along. But it's, it's not something that's under their direct control so much. Now, 826 through 40. Oh, this is, y- y'all know this story. This is, again, one of the more um, famous uh, episodes in this part of Acts. So we're still with Philip. And boy, this thing raises more questions than I've got answers for. So I'm just going to tell you that right now. There's, there's some little minute details in here that I find absolutely fascinating. And it starts with this, 826, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, this is the desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and a high uh, uh, and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. And the spirit told Philip, go up and join the chariot. Let's just take this up a paragraph at a time as we go. A um, couple of things. This, an angel speaks to Philip and he tells him to go down on the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, I gave you a map today, y'all, uh, outside, because we're, we're getting into some points 
that uh, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of helpful to see where these places are. And y'all, this, this map is quick, and so don't make any travel plans based on this. <laughs> this is only approximations of where these things are. I put it together this morning real quick, just looking at another map. So, because um, sometimes a lot of these maps get so complicated, you know, it's hard to see. I just wanted something simple. So here, where he's talking about, if you know, Philip is in Jerusalem. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, he's been in Samaria, which is, um, uh, Samaria would have been in between Jerusalem and Caesarea. On your map there, it's the territory in between. So he's been preaching in Samaria, and now the Lord tells him to go down um, to the road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza, which is down over here along the coast of the Mediterranean, uh, headed down south from Jerusalem. And as he says, this is, you know, this is a desert road. It's in the middle of nowhere is the idea here. And that, that of course, there was a, a trade route that would... Um, come up from the south, you know, in, in Egypt down here. And of course, this guy's from, it says Ethiopia here, which in the first century was part of uh, what was generally referred to as the Nubian Empire. It was uh, down in, in um, the northern part of Egypt, you know, that's off the map here. And so he's probably um, uh, a God-fearer, somebody who's interested in Judaism, and he's come back up to Jerusalem, as, as it says here, uh, he had come up to worship in Jerusalem. But the interesting thing is, uh, just like the man born lame that we saw earlier, this uh, Ethiopian could not have become a convert to Judaism because he's a eunuch. And people who are mutilated, particularly that part of the body, you know what we're talking about. That this guy's more than likely had parts cut off because he is in charge of, of, of something having to do with the larger royal family. And they would cut things away to make sure that guy didn't get in trouble. And so that's more than likely what this guy is. So he would have not have been able to convert wholeheartedly into Judaism because people who are mutilated were not allowed to worship in the presence of God. If you remember that in the law, in the Torah. Uh, that was one of the things that the Lord had taught. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But for now, the, you know, the important thing is to realize that, that this guy, even though he's come to worship, he, he probably could have only, you know, he could have, he could have gone up into the court of the Gentiles, you know, where, where the Gentiles are allowed to go in. But he couldn't have converted and, you know, taken part in the sacrifices and thank offerings and all those kind of things that would happen. I also notice <clears throat> he is... Um, Clearly, he's from Ethiopia. And uh, in the first century, this, this kingdom that the Ethiopians made, made up, uh, even the uh, Greeks, some of the Greek historians, referred to them being at the very ends of the earth. Right? So here's a guy who's coming from the ends of the earth, <laughs> where the gospel is headed. Right? So he, he becomes a figure, you know, kind of a, um, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen as the gospel literally spreads, you know, to the ends of the earth. So, we, you know, we have that, that imagery going on there as well. Uh, but by the way, this, this, uh, this, this region is mentioned in Isaiah 49, 6, and also 62, 11, or, or rather, you know, the idea of the gospel, uh, the Lord's work going there. In fact, let, let me read those to you. Um, 
uh, Isaiah 49, verse 6, and also Isaiah 62, 11. I'm, I'm going to read a little bit out of that. Um, because the, the 49 reference is really interesting for a lot of different reasons. Um, Isaiah 49, 6. Um, if you remember, Isaiah 49 is one of the suffering servant songs in Isaiah. The most famous one is in Isaiah 53, the fourth song, which talks about the servant who dies for his people to redeem them, right? This one is a little bit different. So, and I'm, I'm going to read um, this, this whole context because it's really powerful. This is Isaiah 49, verse 1. Um, he says, and this is the servant of the Lord speaking that we know is the Messiah now. He says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. For the Lord called me from the womb and from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He's hidden me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, now listen to this. So this servant speaking, but I've labored in vain and I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense will be with God. So here the servant is saying, man, I've worked and I've worked and it's all come to nothing. It's utterly failed. Right. Think Jesus ever felt like that. After spending a day with Peter and the other 11. Lord, man, this is coming to nothing. Right. By, by the end of his ministry, Jesus is completely rejected, right? But what does the Lord do? Verse 5. Now, the Lord says to me, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him because I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. So he says, he realizes that he's the one that's going to bring Jacob and Israel back to God, right? Restore them. So this is, this is what the Lord says to the servant, verse 6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the, the uh, remnant of Israel? Right? Is, is, is that too small a thing for you? I'm going to send you to redeem Israel. Is that not enough? That's what the Lord's saying to him. And he goes on to say this. Then I will make you a light for the nations and my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. The servant's job is to restore Israel and Jacob. He thinks his job has come to nothing. God says, well, if that's not enough, how about you just save the whole world to the ends of the earth, right? That's awesome. You and I wouldn't be here in this room studying this book if it weren't for those kind of promises and that prophetic word, right? So here... The salvation, where does it go? It goes to the ends of the earth. The other reference is in Isaiah 62, 11. Isaiah 62, 11, again, a very similar context about the Lord's uh, saving work, uh, saving Jerusalem uh, from Mount Zion. And then he just says this. This is Isaiah 62, 11 again. He says, behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall all be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you should be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Again, this is talking about the salvation of Israel and Jerusalem. And it's couched in the sense of 
uh, that message of salvation goes out to the ends of the earth. Right? This was always God's purpose and always his intention. And so we start to get a little glimpse of it right here in Acts 8 with this little episode with this Ethiopian eunuch that Philip is sent down to uh, uh, speak to. And also, uh, I'll see if we got any questions after this and then we'll move on through it. Uh, <laughs> think about the timing of this. The angel says, Philip, go down. Right? He gets down to the road. There's a guy in a chariot. He's reading out loud. He tells Philip, go over there. Go next to the chariot. He walks up next to the chariot. And what's going on? This guy is reading out loud from the prophet Isaiah. Wow. Timing on that. It's almost like the Lord moved every molecule in the known universe to have that all come together at this exact moment. Right? That's the way God works. There's no consequences. Right? He probably was reading it in Greek, I would guess. The, the, the most read Bible in the first century was the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew, which we call the Septuagint. And so that, that is one of the things that's speculated is, is he reading this in Greek? And I think more than likely he is because there, were, there weren't any other translations that would have been available to him. And, and also being, uh, being a, um, an official of the court of Candace here, he probably would have been trained in Greek because he's, you know, does emissary work and whatnot. So more than likely, that's that's what he's reading. Also, um, where he um, there is something else that he says here uh, where he quotes it. Oh, oh yeah. In, in 832 and 33, uh, a lot of those words seem to be taken right out of the Greek text. But again, did, did Luke put that in or was that what he was actually reading? So there's, there's some question. But it seems to me he would be reading that in Greek. That, that's a great question. Also, just, uh, just another sideline note. The name Candace there uh, is, is a, a, a translation of the title of the queen of the Ethiopians. It's probably not her given name. It's kind of like the name Pharaoh, right? Uh, Pharaoh is not a name, it's a title. It means the king of Egypt. And so the, the word Candace here is, is probably a title for the queen of the Ethiopians, not a, not a personal name there. <clears throat> and it really doesn't affect the story, but it's an interesting note. Um, so uh, here he is, he's reading out loud from Isaiah. And so 8.30, when Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? 8.31, how can I, he said, unless someone guides me. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 8.32, now the scripture passage he was reading was this. Here it is, I just mentioned it. Isaiah 52 and 53, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his, humili in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life was taken from the earth. And then the eunuch replied to Philip, I ask you, who is this prophet saying this about, himself or another person? And so Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. I think... Right. So this this guy is just in his chariot reading, right, <laughs> reading the Hebrew scriptures. Right. And, you know, we have our New Testament in the Bible. But right. There's your Old Testament. Right? So that's a lot of stuff. Right. New Testament. Over there. Of course, he didn't have the New Testament. Old Testament. 
out of all the things he could have been reading. He's right there at that passage, which is one of the clearest prophetic references to Jesus in the whole Old Testament. I mean, it doesn't get any plainer than that, right? And here he is reading it, and he comes up, and Philip uh, says, do you know what you're reading? Well, how can I, unless somebody explains it to him? And, and he asked the right question. Is the prophet talking about himself, or is it somebody else? Man, this guy has great insight. And so Philip tells him about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. Um, and I'm sure he didn't just stop there. He probably fills in with a lot of, you know, right? He takes him through what Jesus was doing with the disciples, how Jesus had fulfilled many of those Old Testament texts. So here, um, Philip, um, F- Philip explains uh, Jesus to him. Um, and then we uh, pick back up, top page 43, 836. It says, now, uh, as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? Um, Now, do you notice in 837, you got brackets around that? This translation has included that uh, uh, sentence, but it is very clear that that was not in the original text of Acts. That is more than likely a later scribal uh, uh, add-on because it does not show up in a bunch of our most uh, of our earliest manuscripts. Um, where it says, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Even the Greek doesn't fit here well. So that, that's probably a later scribal edition. Um, so 8, 838. And by the way, uh, a lot of people, most translations don't even include that verse. Go, go and look in your Bible when you get home. And it just goes from 836 right to 838, right? And if you're not paying attention, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Did they, did they leave something out? Did they miss something? Um, so 838, it says, then he ordered the chariot to stop. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him any longer. But he went on his way rejoicing. And Philip appeared in Azotus or Ashdod is the other name for that. And he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The next time we see Philip, he's still in Caesarea in Acts 21. A lot of times Luke will will leave somebody in a city and then he'll pick back up right there where they are. Uh, And we'll come back to Philip a little bit later. But again, notice the difference in this one. the, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, he, he believes, right? He asks if he can be baptized. And Philip says, yeah, they get down into the water, they baptize him. And when they came up out of the water, now, don't, don't miss the significance of this because you're expecting something to happen here and it doesn't. Or at least it's not described. The minute you read, and the spirit of the Lord, what do you expect is going to happen next? Fell upon, upon him. But what happens? The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch didn't see him any longer. Now, I assume that the Spirit came upon the eunuch, right? But Luke doesn't describe that for us, right? And again, I think he's very careful to try to show that all these things happen in different ways. There's no recipe for the way the Lord works in these people's lives, right? And what... Now, y'all... So the spirit comes and he carries Philip away and he just appears in Ashdod, miles away. I mean, 
I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I still haven't seen that happen. Anyway. This, of, of, of all the things that happen in the scriptures, this is one I'd really love to see. You know, you're talking to somebody and then they just disappear and they wind up somewhere else, you know. You know, um, pe- people that get bent out of shape about, you know, there, there, there are some groups that believe that the book of, of Acts is normative for the church so that when people get saved, they need to speak in tongues and they need to do all this. And I've talked with people like that and I'm like, uh, well, when have you disappeared and showed up somewhere else? That happened. Why hadn't that happening anymore? I've never seen anybody do that, right? But again, the Lord is working. Uh, why does he do this? I don't know. It's just what happened, right? Really, really powerful. It, it, it's also, let me just say this too. Philip, um, Philip, in a sense, is functioning like a prophet here. He's coming to give interpretation own God's word to somebody so they can understand it, which is what the prophets often did. And uh, I, I think there's some parallel to where, you know, Isaiah is taken up into the heavenly throne room. But even more so, Ezekiel uh, is taken and has an out-of-body experience. If you remember that, he's taken from Babylon to Jerusalem. And so, uh, in a sense, this is tied into, this is the way the Lord works in some situations. He does these incredible miraculous events that you, you can't explain in any other way rather than the Lord himself doing it. And so really, really powerful story. The, the gospel has now been shared with somebody from the ends of the earth. And that's going to get us ready for where we're headed in the next several chapters. Because if you notice, and this is a great place to stop uh, for the semester, in chapter nine, we come to Saul. And as you know, Saul is going to become Paul and he's going to be tasked with taking the gospel all the way to Rome uh, and, and, and beginning to fulfill that larger ministry of taking the gospel to the Gentiles and ultimately to the remotest parts of the earth. So next year, when we come back, we'll pick up right there in chapter nine and we'll get into the story of Saul, who's going to become Paul. And we'll um, we'll we'll keep on moving through there. Now, any questions or comments as we close out? It's a little bit over. Yeah, Harlan. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in this day and time, we look at Paul as the significance of, of baptism as a public profession. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What was the significance here with Philip baptizing? Yes. Not in the middle of nowhere. There, yeah, yeah. This is so significant. I've actually thought I, I need to do a handout on baptism and, and um, I'm going to remember to do that for next year. Simply stated, now I'm about to say something and boy howdy, I'm going to say it. We're going to get on out of here. We're going to run for y'all get, because as y'all know, I'm going to push against some tradition. Um, in modern times, we often present baptism as something that we do to be obedient to the faith. In the New Testament, Baptism is something that is done to you to welcome you into a whole new people group. Now, do you, do you, do you understand the difference in that? Right. So here, what 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 is being done is for Philip. Right. And and, and I'm sure that that um, I'm, so, I'm sorry, it's being done for the Ethiopian eunuch. Right. As Philip does it to him. And I'm sure that as he does it, Philip is explaining and, and he would have known this. 
that baptism represented washing away your old way of life so that you can be cleansed and become part of a whole new way of life, right? And that's why I find it so fascinating that as we get into Paul, we're going to hear that he's just going out and persecuting. He's not persecuting Christians. He's persecuting those who belong to the way. These are people who are following the way of Jesus, right? So baptism represents that complete shift in identity, right? Uh, a complete transference of allegiance and connection. I used to be an Ethiopian eunuch who was part of the royal court of Candace. Now I'm a beloved son of the king of the known universe. I'm part of his family. And so what does that do? I've got to think about everything in an entirely new way, right? And I'm following his way, which means love and self-sacrifice, radical generosity. You know, all these things that Jesus taught in Luke comes over, right? And we felt as we come back to Simon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you messed up. You got to be baptized again. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's and that's where we've misread it as being something else. I I, I had the I had the um, uh, great privilege of baptizing my oldest daughter Hannah, and there were several kids that were being baptized, and um, you know we we had the little training class, and made sure everybody knew what was happening to them, and all. but on that day I saved uh, at the baptism right before I put her in the water. I said, Hannah, uh, now you're my daughter, but as I put you in the water and bring you up. You'll now be my sister in the faith. And her eyes got big, right? Oh, wow, that's a whole different thing, you know? That's what the thing is supposed to represent for people, you know? And we've, we've turned it into all kind of things that, 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 to me, completely suck the power out of a lot of these things, you know? And Acts does something to correct that for us, you know? That's a great question. That's a second handout I need to do that I was thinking about today. I hope I can remember by the time I get home. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to my computer wife as I turn loose. All right, y'all, we're way over time. Uh, let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll, we'll turn loose. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us and provide for us. Pray for everybody over the break. Keep them safe. Give them uh, a, a good time of celebration with their family and friends as we think about Thanksgiving and all the things that we uh, have to be grateful for and thankful for. Uh, just in terms of being uh, welcomed into the kingdom of the beloved son, that uh, we have an inheritance that's undefiled and imperishable, uh, reserved in the heavens for us who've given our allegiance to him. And Lord, knowing that, everything else just pales in comparison. And so uh, pray that you'll give us a good break and come back fresh. Uh, watch over us, keep us safe. And we lift up all the things going on in our world, Lord, particularly what's happening in Israel right now. Uh, every day I think of the prophet saying that in the end days, Jerusalem will become a great millstone hung around the neck of the nations. And Lord, uh, we might be in the middle of all that right now, but we know that um, we have the blessed hope before us of the return of our Lord Jesus to set everything right. And so, Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on him in all that we do. And uh, we ask all this for his great namesake. Amen. Y'all have a Merry Thanksgiving, Happy Christmas, all that. We'll, we'll see y'all next year. <laughs>